When I was in college, one of my favorite courses, and it was really much to my surprise, okay, was one on the plays of William Shakespeare. This professor was really interesting. And the first day in class, he said, you may miss my class one time and get an A, but you can't get an A if you miss it twice. If you miss it three times, you're getting a C. And if you miss it four times, you might as well drop out. And then he said, and I don't take role. It was that you had to be there every day for these plays. It was fascinating. Once you get past the archaic language, uh, which is also my complaint about the uh, King James Version of the Bible, I read uh, the, either the New American Standard or the uh, English Standard Version because I'm not real hot with that. Though my children, Megan and Niels, both use the King James, but once you get past the archaic language, you see how little people or situations have changed over the centuries. Uh, something also I point out frequently about people in Old Testament times. The Bible is so universal because people really have not changed in the way they think or in the way they see the world in 4,000 years. But the sheer creativity of Shakespeare's language is not only startling, but still in use today. Uh, phrases such as, break the ice, okay, that's, he wrote it for the first time. Um, Clothes make the man, come what may, fair play, eating me out of house and home, in a pickle, a laughing stock. And it's Greek to me, which you know, I use often as I'm trying to parse the Greek language here in the Bible. Somebody I heard once complained that they didn't like Shakespeare because he just strung together a bunch of cliches. So, you know, there's, what can I say? That's just scratching the surface. He invented words besides. He invented the word dawn, okay? What did they use before Shakespeare came up with dawn for early morning? I suppose they used early morning. He came up with the word dawn. He invented the words auspicious, um, baseless, castigate, hostile, lonely, overblown, and watchdog. He came up with watchdog. He invented the word skim milk, okay? The guy was, what can I say? He was, he was prolific. But for all Shakespeare's astonishing creativity, the words and phrases he introduced to the world pale in comparison to the Bible. Okay, it, it doesn't even, he doesn't even touch it. Let there be light. Forbidden fruit, by the sweat of your brow, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and my, bro my brother's keeper, oldest uh, Methuselah. The list very well may be inexhaustible. This short list here came from uh, uh, the first website I found on the internet, and it had 91 examples, and so it, it was just one of the sites. Our passage in Acts today has one of those phrases. Paul, upon being rejected while bringing the gospel to the synagogue in Corinth, as we read last week, 
Today we say that, see that he shook out his clothes on leaving the synagogue. Shaking out your clothes or shaking the dust off your sandals was a well-known rebuke in biblical times. A Jew, and the Jews were very proud of their heritage, and a Jew coming back to Judea from Gentile lands would stop as they entered Israel, Judea, Galilee, and symbolically shake the dust off their clothes to leave it behind in the country they were coming back from. The same thing was done when they traveled within Israel. Galilee was in the north. Samaria was in the middle and Judea was in the south. There was a quick way. Uh, there was another way to get from Galilee to Judea without going through Samaria. But that required crossing the Jordan River, going around the Sea of Galilee, and you're in Gentile lands anyway, but being in Gentile lands were better than being in Samaria. But the quick way was right through Samaria, and it was the way that Jesus usually took if he wasn't on a preaching ministry. But the same thing was done then, leaving Samaria. They would kick the, shake the dust off their sandals as they entered Judea. When Jesus sent his uh, disciples on their ministry travels, their teaching uh, journeys. He did so with these instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He told them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received uh, without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace Come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. And truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Note that these are not Gentiles towns that he's talking about. They're not Samaritan towns. Jesus sent them to the lost sheep of Israel. These are Jews that Jesus is telling them to shake off the dust from if they do not uh, meet with a good reception. So today in Acts uh, 18, we're looking at, I said verses 5 through 11, but it's not true. We're only doing 5 through uh, Eight, I believe, or five through nine. So I'd like to say it's significantly shorter, but it's not. That's why we're not. That's why I cut some verses out. Acts eighteen um, five through eight says, "When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him." He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, Justus, a worshiper of God. 
His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Now last week we saw that when Paul arrived in the city of Corinth, he met Aquila and Priscilla, a married Jewish couple who had been expelled from Rome by the decree of the Emperor Claudius in AD 49, and it wasn't just them, it was all the Jews. The Jews were causing trouble. Uh, Claudius in AD 41 had said they couldn't meet together anymore. That didn't stop them. There was still grumbling going on in 49. Claudius was tired of it and expelled all the Jews. Now, the Jews were causing trouble because they were arguing with Jews who had come back from Jerusalem with word of Jesus. So the Christians sort of instigated the problem, but only the Jews were thrown out because anyway, just bring you up to date. Priscilla and Quilla having the uh, same trade as Paul, leather working, uh, commonly called a tent maker, but it was any leather goods, had Paul live with them and join them in their work. Then as in verse 5 says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the correct Christ was Jesus. Um, a better wording of this verse is found in the New American Standard ver uh, Version. But when Sim Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. The word begin is not in the Greek, but instead is assumed to explain the action of Paul. As scripture does not tell us, we don't know how long Paul had been supporting himself in leatherworking. It just does not say how long that had gone on uh, before Silas and Timothy caught up with him in Corinth. But when they did arrive, they brought Paul's support from the church in Philippi. And that is why he was able to leave the tent making and devote himself only to preaching. Uh, in Philippians uh, 4, 15 through 16, he writes, Paul writes to the Philippians and says, And you Philippians know yourself that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, which is where Philippi was, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for the, my needs once and again. And writing to the Corinthians themselves in um, uh, 2 Corinthians 11.9, Paul said, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So Paul even acknowledges that Silas and Timothy coming from Philippi and Macedonia allowed him to devote himself to the teaching. But it was not just the money that Silas and Timothy brought that uh, eased Paul's burdens. You'll remember that when he was driven out of Thessalonia, the authorities were coming down on the church and he did not know what had happened to the church in Thessalonica and all the people who had supported him there. And Timothy brought a report that in First uh, Thessalonians we see Paul saying, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, 
as we long to see you for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So he got the good news that the authorities had not come down on the Thessalonians and that indeed they were a thriving church and they would be a thriving church for many years to come. So Paul devoted himself to the word, preaching the prophecies and concerning the Messiah from the prophetic books of the Old Testament, the only thing that existed. So he was using in the synagogue their uh, Tanakh, which is the Old Testament, trying to persuade those in the synagogue that Jesus was that Messiah that they had been waiting for and uh, showing it through his death and resurrection. Verse 6 reads, And when they, and that would be the Jews in the synagogue, opposed and reviled him, and we'll pause there, the word translated here as opposed, is resisted in other translations, is a military term in the Greek, antitasso, uh, meaning to arrange in battle array. The Jews were not just resisting his message, they were, they were organizing themselves in the uh, synagogue in, in Corinth to resist the teaching that Paul was bringing in. And, and like I say, this is the same teaching that got the Jews thrown out of Rome. Uh, it's the same teaching that got Paul thrown out of uh, Thessalonica, the city in Antioch. Uh, organized resistance was rising up. It shows how just how much pushback the Jews offered to Paul's message. They were going to battle against not only Paul, but against God. So all of verse 6 reads, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now this was a shocking and spectacular, as some uh, commentators say, spectacular action for Paul to take in the synagogue, to shake out his clothes in the very synagogue of the Jews themselves. And it was a shock that the Jews of Corinth would not soon forget. And even beyond those actions, Paul declaring himself innocent of their blood, told of God's judgment on the Jews in choosing to oppose God. After the pronouncement that the Jews were responsible for God's wrath upon them, Paul announced publicly that he would henceforth take the gospel to the Gentiles. God's chosen people were not chosen any longer. Verse 7 says, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. In fact, um, it is believed that they were a conjoined property. The synagogue was on one side. Titius uh, Justus' house was the other side of it. And that probably Titius Joseph owned both the synagogue building and the new church building. So we have side by side, uh, Paul not having to go very far to relocate his ministry. Now, Titius uh, Justice is a Roman name, and he was a Gentile God-fearer. 
Now, Romans normally had three names, and Paul only gives us two names here, uh, his two uh, last names, not his first name. We are pretty certain we know exactly who Titius Joseph was, and we'll get to that in just a minute, because clues are found in something we're going to read in Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians, who identify him uh, as first name Gaius Titius Justus. Verse 8, the last one we'll cover today, says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And here, in another shock to the Jews, not only did Paul shake off his clothes in their presence, but the ruler, it says, the president of the synagogue joined him as well and became a Christian, moved his office next door also though not many Jews were persuaded by Paul's ministry the ruler of the synagogue along with his household believed now while um, these Jewish Christians Messianic Jews if you will were still permitted to worship in synagogue um, Jews and Christians worshipped until about the year 105 A.D together in synagogues. They were not put out, Christians were not put out of synagogues for 70 years. And they were put out because they were causing, uh, the Roman persecution of the Christians was causing the Jews to be swept up in it. And because of that persecution, and really only for that reason, were they separated. Did the Jews throw the uh, Christians out of the synagogues Now, it would be hard to imagine that Crispus remained in the synagogue, okay? We don't have a report on that. I would assume that he did not, with all the rancor that had been stirred up. But other than Crispus and his household, we are not told how many Jews believed and joined Paul and Crispus in the new outreach in Corinth. The only... Converts' names, uh, converts that were named here in Acts, were Titus, Justus, and Crispus. Uh, interestingly, these two uh, show up together also in 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the church, chastising them for the divisions that have sprung up among them. And in verses 11 through 15, Paul says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Notice Paul says he only baptized Crispus and Gaius. Now, do we really know Gaius is the man identified as Titus Justus? Justus. So in Paul's letter to the Romans, believed to have been written in 57 AD, Paul wrote the epistle during another stay of visit in Corinth. So he's writing from Corinth writing to the Romans, and he says this, 
in uh, his closing greetings, closing salutation, he says, Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. So, Gaius, it was Gaius's building. Uh, Gaius was the host to both Paul and to the whole church. We know from our passage today that when Paul removed himself from the synagogue, a man named Titius Justus offered his house for the church. We know Titius Justus is a Roman name. We know generally that Romans had three names, and we know that Gaius lent his house, gave his house to the ministry. Therefore, the Gaius of 1 Corinthians and Romans 16 is Gaius Titius Justus, uh, which is an interesting sideline. So with the actions of Paul in our passage today, the apostle will increasingly take his message to the Gentile nations. Indeed, in his letter to the Romans, Paul states in chapter 11, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. So he called himself an apostle to the Gentiles. Now in light of this, along with today's passage showing Paul's rejection of the synagogue and the example of Jesus telling his disciples to shake off the dust of Jewish, not Gentile or Samaritan, but Jewish cities that rejected Christ's teaching. What are we to make of the claim of the Jews, and because we're hearing it a lot, and I've always heard it, that the Jews are God's chosen people. Were they? Are they? Are they still? In the wake of the October 7th um, Hamas attacks on Israel, I have heard two sermons on this uh, subject, both taking the position that the modern state of Israel represents God's chosen people, and that's why Christians must stand with Israel. Now, I think Christians must stand with Israel. This is not my argument. But are they God's chosen people? Because God's chosen people have never been the physical nation of Israel, but the spiritual Israel. And we find that in the Old Testament itself. How to understand this difference? Um, I will go back to William Shakespeare to make you to bring to life what the difference between, uh, between those two are. Shakespeare wrote, all that glisters is not gold, okay? Uh, we've corrupted it, uh, language to all that glitters is not gold. Same word. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans uh, 1,600 years earlier than that, said this, not all Israel is Israel, okay? Not all Israel is Israel. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Note that Paul calls fellow Jews my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are his fleshly brothers, but not his spiritual brothers. Going on, he says, they are Israelites, 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Historically, the Israelites, the birthright of the Hebrews was the covenants, and the law, and the patriarchs, and the Messiah. Further he goes on, and this is, I didn't tell you, it's from Romans 9. Further he goes on, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You see, not all of Abraham's children received the blessing. His first son did not receive the blessing. When God made a promise to Abraham that he would be a great people, the father of many nations, well, of course, Abraham and Sarah were too old to have children. Well, Sarah was too old to have children, closing in on 100 years old. Abraham decided to get God out of his jam that the promise set God up for, and had a son through Hagar, his servant. But though Ishmael, this son, was Abraham's son by parentage, of Abraham's flesh, he was not Abraham's son in spirit, or in the spirit as well. Instead, God calls Ishmael a wild donkey of a man. Okay, uh, there's other language we could use today for wild donkey, but uh, that sums it up pretty well. Paul says um, this means that it is not the fle- children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul finishes up with this in verses nine through thirteen. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, wrong birth order, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. One was born of the flesh to Isaac. One was spiritually not his son, and that would be Esau. So in Matthew 3, 3, 7 through 10, we have the account of Jesus' cousin John baptizing people in the Jordan River. And it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And God could raise children from the stones. God's people have always been spiritual Israel. And I'm not saying, and by saying that, um, we know that all Jews, even being written about in the Torah, were not saved. Only the spiritual Israelis were saved. The nation of Israel ceased to be God's chosen people, not because God rejected them, because he did not, but because they rejected God. God sent his promised Messiah, and physical, fleshly Israel rejected him, and had the Romans execute Jesus as a criminal. God's true Israel, God's spiritual Israel, is now his Christian church. Roman census records show that self-identified Jews in the Roman Empire declined from 6 million at the crucifixion of Jesus to 300,000 by the end of the second century. What happened to them? There was no persecution. Uh, They weren't driven from the lands. I've taught this before. Uh, If you look it up, 95% of the Jews, self-identified Jews, disappeared from the Roman Empire. What happened to them? It appears that they became Christians and stopped identifying as Jews. Paul's turning away from them in their synagogues and going to the Gentiles accomplished what he predicted in the 11th chapter of Romans. Because Paul was mightily hurt about his fleshly kinsmen. He says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And going on, he says, so I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world through the salvation of Jesus, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean when they come to saving faith in Christ and come back into being spiritual Israel? How much more will that full inclusion mean He says, now, and I read this earlier, now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of those branches were broken off, as the Jews were, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Christians were grafted into the church 
into the spiritual Israel and the non-believing Jews were cut off. And Paul is saying here, when the Jews are grafted back in, when they come to believing faith, do not despise them. Because you are grafted to their root, to their faith. He says, if you are arrogant towards them, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, nation of Israel, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? And I'll end with one more thing from Romans 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And I guess my point is is that 95% of the Jews believed in Jesus. The 5% that are left today are, and they will tell you this themselves, descended from the Pharisees. I think they will be grafted back in. I have every belief that God intends to save as many of the nation of Israel as he possibly can. No. As many as who will call upon his name and be saved. I truly believe that. Is Israel the chosen people of God? No, but they can be. And many of them are. And many more will be in the future. Let's pray.